the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Welcome to TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, October 15th, 2021. Coming to you from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin, as always. Now, a year ago, we had a summer of protest behind us from George Floyd's murder, where uh, a complete overhaul of how we saw the interaction of police with public society uh, was imagined and promised and uh, actions actually taken in a number of cases. Well, now that movement was often referred to as defunding the police because it was seen that there were far too many funds being spent on what essentially was violence against society via the police where those funds would be better spent. Even the police could agree if they thought about it, the, those funds could be better spent in uh, other capacities for society. Take the funds away from the policing, put them towards social work, take the funds away from the policing, put them towards specialists that could handle homeless people. For example, that kind of thing that way, while, Yes, the funding was moving away from policing. It would actually also take the stress off the police over how many different tasks in society they had been pressed to do, uh, many of them inappropriately. Not, not the kind of thing one should ask officers of the law to be handling. That was known as defunding the police. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we appear to be having a refunding period. Um, The New York Times this week uh, actually went on to explain how this worked out. Um, In a piece by J. David Goodman, it says, um, here, it says, uh, Goodman says, the demonstrators came at night chanting and blowing whistles outside the home of Mayor Eric Johnson, protesting in occasionally personal terms about his staunch refusal to cut funding of the Dallas, Texas Police Department. Defund, reclaim, reinvest were the chants. 
A few weeks later, the police chief resigned over her handling of large-scale protests. Then Dallas City Council voted to cut how much money the department could use on overtime and hiring new officers. And that was last year. This year, very different. In cities across America, police departments are getting their money back. From New York to Los Angeles, departments that saw their funding targeted amid nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd, uh, pardon me, murder, that's been upheld in the court of law, murder of George Floyd last year, watched as local leaders voted for increases in police spending this year. An additional $200 million allocated to the New York Police Department alone. A 3% boost given to the Los Angeles Police Force. The abrupt reversals have come in response to rising levels of crime in major cities last year, the exodus of officers from departments large and small, and of course, the big one, political pressures. You see, so long as the political pressure was from our side of things saying, look, we need to do something better than the policing that we've had. We need to take these funds and do better things with them. Well, so long as that pressure was on our side, the politicians did what we wanted them to do. But you see, the pressure waned from us. And so the other side, well, they didn't go away. They said, yes, we want more funds back on the police. Let's go. After slashing police spending last year, Austin, Texas, restored the department's budget and raised it to new heights. That's Austin, Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a Madison native, you understand that Austin, Texas and Madison, Wisconsin kind of sort of consider themselves sister cities, as in the weird state capitals in otherwise, you know, controversially uh, purple states. Um, Yes, overall, Wisconsin is just a shade more blue in that purple. But the point is, is that both Austin and um, Madison consider themselves um, kindred, kindred spirits. And there you go. Austin not only restored the budget, raised it to higher levels than ever before. Well, how about Bernie Sanders' uh, stomping grounds, where he used to be a mayor, Burlington, Vermont? (laughs) Well, they cut the police budget last year, and now they've approved $10,000 bonuses for officers who stay on the job. Now, let's be clear. That's a little bit different than some of the rest. Obviously, they had to raise the funds for that. Um, But if you actually do have officers who are currently staying on the job um, and you want to retain them uh, because they're worth keeping, okay. I actually, I guess I don't have as big a problem with Burlington, Vermont's bonuses to individual officers for staying put. Um, I don't have a bigger problem with that as I do with the rest. But it is interesting to note that even Burlington has allocated more funding to the police. However, here's the thing. All that's there, but as I said, Dallas. Nowhere has the contrast been nearly as stark as it has been in Dallas, Texas, where Mayor Johnson not only proposed to restore money to the department, but also moved to increase the number of officers on the street 
writing over this uh, this summer here of 2021, Dallas needs more police officers. Laura Cooper, executive director of the Major Cities uh, Chiefs Association, said, Dallas stands out for the amount of investment that the local government is putting into the department. After the mayor proposed increasing funding, no protests followed. There's the problem. When the council backed a budget that restored many of the cuts made last year, very few came to the public hearing, and even fewer spoke against the plan, which included the hiring of 250 new officers. It passed with little fanfare last month. In prioritizing public safety, um, Mayor Johnson, a Democrat, had drawn a connection between his approach and that of other uh, leaders in the black community like Eric Adams, the Democratic mayor, mayoral nominee in New York City, who see police as a necessary part of helping neighborhoods racked by crime. And, and he was drawn on his experience growing up in black neighborhoods of Dallas. Johnson said during an interview at Dallas City Hall, as an African-American male who came of age in the 1990s, I remember a lot of people whose lives were devastated by violence. I don't want to go back there. The problem, of course, that these um, pro-police Democratic politicians seem to be glossing right over is that there are no, there's no small amount of that violence caused to the black community by the police. That was the problem to begin with. But to combat a rise in violent crime last year with homicides up 25% to 252, the highest point in two decades, Dallas has embarked on an old school approach, hot spot policing. The strategy, which relies on the idea that a small number of places contain a large amount of the city's crime, has been tried and tested around the country for decades now. Criminologists have found that it works to reduce crime in the areas identified as problematic. So far in Dallas, the number of recorded homicides has declined slightly. Overall, violent crime is down about 6% from this time last year, but the hotspot approach remains a point of tension. And I would also like to call out something else, a big, big thing. At this point last year, we were less than a month away from the most contentious election in U.S. history. We were absolutely on a razor's edge when it came to um, the kind of tension the kind of societal and emotional tension that causes violent crime. Do keep in mind, and this has been proven true over and over again throughout the years, murder is almost always what's called a crime of passion, something that happens because tempers flare. That's why first-degree murder, which is murder with actual intent for more than, say, five minutes, like notable amounts of planning going into the killing of another human being, that is why that carries the highest penalties, because it's rare. Most murder is bad snap decisions, um, passions overflowing. And this time last year, the passions, 
the tension, all of it was just at a fever pitch. And to say that your controversial hotspot policing approach has only brought down violent crime 6% from this time last year, my God, that <laughs> that's that's nothing. In fact, I would say that that's well within the margin one would expect just from there being less political tension in the air. Chief Eddie Garcia, who took over the Dallas Department this year and developed the hotspot plan with outside researchers, said, well, hotspot policing is a polarizing subject, particularly in communities of color. Nothing was working. We're onto something that seems to be working. God, they're so desperate. They're so desperate to prove that old traditional police work works. And they're doing it by doubling down on the idea of hotspots. Now, now, now let, me, let me try to paint a picture for you here. When you are policing hotspots, where do you think the police put these hotspots generally? Remember, the Democratic mayor specifically says he wants to keep violence down amongst black communities. So guess where the hotspots are? Black communities. So guess where increased, increased police presence is under hotspot policing? Black communities. And guess what that means? More police violence against black communities. To only see a 6% drop in violent crime from this time last year to now. That's, that's a condemnation that there's been any positive effect at all. At the Kings of Cuts Barbershop in South Dallas, a predominantly black neighborhood where assaults and robberies have been an issue, Gerard Claiborne, 49 years old, was well aware of the idea and worried about its application. Claiborne said, when you talk about hotspots, these are still minority communities. I can't say the mayor's plan won't work, but it's a bigger fix that's needed. For a start, Claiborne wanted to see more training of officers. His barbershop was a site of mourning after its owner was shot and killed two years ago. More recently, it's become a place where police officers hold occasional informal meetings with local residents. On a recent visit, the commander for the area, Deputy Chief Osama Ismail, sat for a trim and straight razor shave while Lieutenant Leroy Quigg talked football with a customer. Claiborne said, They're trying to close that gap and humanize the department. It's something that should have happened decades ago. The question of policing in Dallas has been fraught for years. The size of the force dropped precipitously in 2016 to roughly 3,100 officers from about 3,600 after hundreds of officers left the ranks, mostly over a pension issue. That same year, five officers were killed by a heavily armed sniper who targeted white officers during protests over the killing of black men by police. Now, now allow me, your humble host here, to quickly recount a couple of facts here so they don't get lost. This is not during the George Floyd protests. This was not last year. This is five years ago. Five years ago, 500 officers left the Dallas force, dropped from 3,600 to 3,100. 
over a pension issue. Now, and again, this is five years ago. Five officers in Dallas were killed by a sniper who targeted white officers because um, they felt they were doing the right thing by killing white officers during protests over killing black the killing of black men by police. So, again, keep in mind, five years ago. The environment in Dallas was so very tense regarding specifically police violence against black people. Now, please note, and this is not a coincidence, that's a heavily violent time, and it was a presidential election year. Which presidential election? Trump v. Clinton. Not quite as tense as last year, as 2020 was for elections. Oh, but very, very tense. Now, at the same time, recent fatal killings by Dallas police officers have strained relations with community. Yep. The department's headquarters sit on Botham Jean Boulevard, renamed earlier this year for the black Dallas man who was shot and killed in his home in 2018 by an off-duty Dallas police officer. Okay, so police officer, Dallas police officer Amber Geiger mistook his apartment, supposedly, for Botham Jean's apartment and shot and killed Botham Jean. So they named the street after him. Specifically, as it happens, it's the uh, where the department, the Dallas department headquarters is. Um, that that street got renamed after the um, after the victim of a police officer's shooting. Now, more recently, the department had been reeling from the deletion of a huge trove of police evidence data earlier this year, about 22 terabytes, representing 17,000 cases. Officials have been able to recover some of the data, but an official report released two weeks ago found that nearly a third of the data appears to have been permanently lost. Now, the reason why that needs to be mentioned is that investigations continue into Dallas police's past behavior. And oh, conveniently, wow, 17,000 cases, 22 terabytes of data, poof, gone. Now, to his credit, Chief Garcia, who came to Dallas from San Jose, California, has had early success in improving officer morale. Fewer officers than expected left the department this year. But some local reform advocates have complained the department has become less open to working with those who want broader structural changes. Dominique Alexander, president of Next Generation Action Network, a civil rights organization based in Dallas, says, Well, last year there was a lot of movement, but with this new police chief, that's gone. Now, Dominique Alexander, who, like the mayor, grew up in the Oak Cliff neighborhood of Dallas, was among the protesters outside of Mayor Johnson's home last year. He said that he decided 
his group would not protest the mayor's plan to increase police funding this year because he'd given up on the local political system. Instead, Alexander said he was preparing to make a complaint about policing in Dallas to the U.S. Department of Justice. The city, the nation's ninth most populous, with about 1.3 million residents, and allow me to bring that back to scale, Madison doesn't have 0.3 million yet. We're getting there. We're above 250,000. But imagine, if you will, five Madison's worth of people. And then you have the population of Dallas. 1.3 million. So that city, Dallas, has a history of racial conflict that, of course, can still be seen on the streets, including a Confederate cemetery nestled into a black neighborhood of South Dallas. Uh, Above Interstate 30, if you will, north, I should say, pardon me, of Interstate 30 in Dallas is predominantly white. South of it, it's mostly black and Hispanic. North of Interstate 30 has seen rapid economic development in recent years. South of it, some still live without municipal sewer service. Now, yes, it is illegal for banks to officially redline neighborhoods, but what if they don't have to? I mean, you don't have to put a red line around a neighborhood and say, we're not giving out loans in this area. We're not going to economically develop this area. If all you have to do is look at a map, see where the freeway is and say, yeah, north of there is cool. South of there isn't. There doesn't have to be any maps, incriminating maps with red lines on them to show, oh, my gosh, look, they're discriminating. No, they just use the freeway for that. 34-year-old Aldem Bazaldua, um, a progressive Democrat and the first Hispanic elected to Dallas City Council from his area of southern Dallas that was once primarily black but now includes many Hispanic residents, says, Police presence may deter, but it is not the answer to getting rid of crime. Black residents account for about 24% of the population in his area. Hispanics about 42% now. Bazaldua said he was labeled the defunder by his opponents last year because of his desire to move some funding from the police overtime budget and put it toward better street lighting, particularly along a section of Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, where there are many boarded up businesses. See, that's what we're talking about. Look, they took it from the police overtime fund, which frankly, here's the thing. When you have too many police going on overtime, they're cranky, they're tired. Sure, they're earning more money for it, but... This is not good policing. And they're saying, hey, look, if we just increase the lighting at night along this stretch, it could reduce crime right there because crime won't want to go where it's well lit. So for that, he used the defunder. And he faced several challenges. Basil faced several challengers for his reelection earlier this year. One of them was backed by the mayor, who thought that Basildua's stance on police funding made him vulnerable. The police union even took out a billboard by the exit to his home, warning that he had voted to defund our police. Ah, but the politics of policing in Dallas are not straightforward. Basildua won re-election anyway. Now, Alexander, the reform advocate from earlier, said this whole myth 
that we're not supported by the people. This past election showed us we're supported by the people. The new funding approved by the council would be enough to add a net total of about 100 officers over the next two years to Dallas's force, even with attrition. The budget also included more money for alternatives to police intervention, thankfully, such as specialized teams trained to handle 911 calls for people in mental health distress. Now, crime has trended down this year. Yes, trended down. And that has everything, ladies and gentlemen, to do with the fact that societally we have less tension this year. There's less passion to go behind the crimes of passion. Despite that, they want to play up the fact that there's a concern about violence, especially in the low-income apartment complexes and such. Oh, yes, they're going to play up the concern because that gives them the leverage to try to say, we need more police. Crimes trended down without the increases. So where does this put this exactly? Well, so the election in Dallas shows there are plenty of folks still backing the idea that we need to reform the police, that less spending is preferable to more when it comes to just raw, old-fashioned police that clearly don't help minority neighborhoods achieve less violence, and that people are supportive of measures and budgets that look to alternatives for such things and to those who back those things. What we need to make sure of is that if we have a cause we support, I don't care what it is, if we have a cause we support, we need to never let up that pressure because those who oppose our causes aren't going anywhere. And they'll be right there to swoop in the moment we take our foot off the gas. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one person of Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. What's the more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Under the bridge, over the tracks, 
Memories flies from lights You sides Run for your lives Tonight the riots begin In back streets of America They kill the dream of America It's assaulted, ain't no reason why News for the prince is stored Racist tempers fire Next day it starts a riot Knives and guns are drawn Two black boys get killed One white boy goes blind Across the lines Who would dare to go Under the bridge Over the tracks Separates whites from blacks Two sides Run for your lives Tonight the riots begin Back streets of America They kill the dream of America Little black girl gets assaulted, no one know her name Lots of people hurt and angry, she's the one to blame Across the lines, who would dare to go Under the bridge, over the tracks Separates whites from blacks, two sides for your lives Tonight the riots begin Back streets of America They kill the dream of America And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. So in the last segment, uh, we spoke on how the uh, gains, at least some of them, made last year in defunding uh, the police in order to have alternatives um, receive that, that same funding uh, seem to have been reversed in some cases, at least. Um, and I don't want to ever be one to bring up a problem without suggesting solutions, or at least where one can find those solutions. One of the places you can find solutions uh, to the problem of, of the American police force is, and bear me out here, Colin Kaepernick. That's right, Colin Kaepernick, you remember him, um, the NFL star who uh, five years ago took a knee to protest police brutality. Well, since then, he has gone on to found Copernic Publishing. And um, 
it is now about to release its first book called Abolition for the People, the Movement for a Future Without Policing and Prisons. In fact, it's now available, pardon me, in print, ebook, and audio formats. Like I said, it's edited by um, former NFL uh, quarterback Colin Kaepernick, uh, and it represents the uh, first book released under his Kaepernick publishing. Uh, It comes, again, five years after Kaepernick, who had played six seasons for the San Francisco 49ers, took a knee during the national anthem to protest police brutality and systemic racism in the United States. Now, just as a quick summary, in case you and we're under a rock at the time. Copernic paid severely for this activism. Uh, you know, despite the fact that he's joined the rankings of some of the most notable quarterbacks in National Football League history, the 49ers chose to release Copernic following the 2016 season. He remained an unsigned free agent throughout the 2017 season, which led to accusations he was being blackballed from the league. Of course, it didn't help that Trump at that time called him a son of a, well, I'll I'll leave the, uh, I'll leave the invective to Trump. But the point is, by 2019, Copernic had reached a private settlement with the National Football League after no team would sign him. Since then, he's focused his energy toward the pursuit of social and racial justice. He's partnered with Nike and other high profile brands to elevate the calls for transformational change. Now, two years, finally, after launching Copernic Publishing, the release of his Abolition for the People intends to utilize a new generation of writers with diverse views to build a better and more just world. That's, you know, right there on their website. So, defunding the police. That that was a spooky enough term for those who are supporters of the current regime of policing in the United States. But abolition, what's that now? I mean, when people hear the word abolition, they often think of slavery because the fight to abolish slavery represents one of humanity's most important achievements. But abolition by itself is simply the act of ending a practice or institution. It can be applied to all sorts of different systems. Loosely, prison abolitionists, I should say, believe that incarceration harms society more than it helps. Alternatives to incarceration include restorative justice, where communities collectively work with both the victim and the perpetrator of a crime to come to a solution on how to heal the victim and provide restitution for the crime. In fact, 1976, now we're talking, clearly, 45 years ago, there was a pamphlet entitled Instead of Prisons, a Handbook for Abolitionists. In it, there was details of three pillars of abolitionism. They included a moratorium or a halt on all new prison construction, decarceration, in other words, a mass release of prisoners who don't represent a threat to society, and there's plenty of those, by the way, in uh, in the uh, institutions of prison right now, and excarceration, which would mean finding ways to divert people away from the prison industrial complex. You may have heard of the school to prison pipeline. Well, this is the opposite. This is pipelining people away from being incarcerated. Now, at one time in the U.S., prison abolition almost became a mainstream concept due largely to the civil rights uh, work of trailblazer Angela Davis. Davis once asked, according to the Harvard Gazette, 
My question is, why are people so quick to assume that locking away an increasingly large proportion of the U.S. population would help those who live in the free world feel safer and more secure? Davis, a longtime prison abolitionist, began her career as an unapologetic communist professor in California. She rose to fame in the 1970s after a gun she purchased was used in an armed takeover of a courtroom in Marin County, California. This 1970 uh, trial involved a Black Panther. Now, Davis overcame a murder charge to lead as a prison abolitionist. Jonathan Jackson attempted to free his brother George, a member of the Black Panthers. Jackson smuggled guns into the Marin County Courthouse during the proceeding of another Black Panther. Jackson then armed convicts and took the judge, deputy, district attorney, and three jurors as hostages. Now, this is all according to archives from the University of California, Los Angeles, you know, UCLA. During the escape, the judge and several convicts were killed in an exchange of gunfire. The guns were registered by Angela Davis, who had ties to the brothers. On the run, the FBI eventually added Davis to their most wanted list. She became only the third woman ever to make that list, by the way. After her capture, Davis gained nationwide and international support. Charged with murder and kidnapping, she pleaded not guilty. Ultimately, with the help of high-profile communist attorneys, an all-white jury found her not guilty of being complicit in the murders that took place. Since then, she's written books, spoken at conferences, and has continued to teach college students about prison abolition. Now, most notably, in the 1970s, the idea of abolishing prisons was actually catching steam. Newly published books highlighted how, despite having the world's highest incarceration rate, the United States was not the safest country on earth. Organizations began to endorse a moratorium on all new prison construction. At least one Republican senator began to have a change of heart. In 1972, Congressman Stuart McKinney spent 36 hours in a prison to understand the other side. According to the Associated Press, the congressman emerged from prison an emotionally strained man. Calling the current prison system a big waste of money and human life, McKinney told reporters, I can't see consigning any human being to this kind of existence. Yet, here we are decades later, with the United States continuing to hold a quarter of the world's prisoners, despite only making up 5% of the world's population. So, so let me bring those numbers into maybe a little clearer um, comparison. If we had a proportional amount of the world's prisoners per population, we would have 5% of the world's prisoners because we only have 5% of the world's population. Instead, we have five times the proportion, 25% of the world's prisoners, 5% of the population. Basically speaking, by comparison to how other countries imprison people, we imprison people five times as often. That's insane. And we're supposed to be the land of the free? 
Angela Davis once said, this is a measure of how difficult it is to envision a social order that does not rely on the threat of sequestering people in dreadful places designed to separate them from their communities and their families. The prison is considered so natural and so normal in the United States that it is extremely hard to imagine life without such a thing. Likewise, calls to abolish the current system of policing have faced obstacles as well. We, we covered that in the first segment. Calls for reforms like better training, body cams, more oversight have been tried and implemented, yet police continue to kill 1,000 civilians on average every year. So not only are the calls to defund the police far more realistic and far more important than many people imagine, but the calls can extend, and should perhaps extend, to abolishing the prison system entirely, the one we currently have at least, and replace it with something far more humane and, frankly, far more effective. If we want to call ourselves the land of the free, we can't be imprisoning five times more often than the world average. That's simply insanity. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that I enjoy sharing some cutting-edge science sometimes, or at least uh, recent discoveries uh, in research. And uh, there's a new study out that suggests that humans and some primates are not necessarily the only animals on the globe capable of consciousness or sentience, if you will, uh, specifically subjective experiences. In fact, this study shows corvids may be joining us. Now, if you're not clear on what corvids are, that's okay. That's a, a more technical term for crows and ravens. So crows and ravens may be joining us and some primates, um, according to this study at least, in being capable of subjective experiences. Now, I mean, crows and ravens are, are famously brainy birds. Um, but the, uh, the way this works out is um, Sharon Begley in stat um, has measured uh, or talks about a study that measures brain activity in crows performing a virtual task. And by measuring that brain activity, the researchers found that on top of the crow's basic sensory experiences, which is what any animal has, um, these birds have another layer of awareness. In the journal Science, the authors argue that these two layers of perception constitute a form of what humans call subjective experience. So uh, just to be clear, objective experience is literally just taking what your senses are, are telling you directly and without reanalyzing it or realizing, well, maybe there's something else here, right? That's the ability to stop and look at what your senses are giving you and work around that. That's a subjective experience. And that's, that's consciousness essentially. Now, until now, this type of consciousness, again, has only been witnessed in humans and other primates, which have completely different brain structures than any kind of bird. Andreas Needler, an animal physiologist at the University of uh, Tübingen and the study's lead author, said in a statement, The results of our study opens up a new way of looking at the evolution of awareness and its neurobiological constraints. These experiments involved monitoring the brain activity of two crows trained to peck at a colored light if they saw a figure appear on the screen. The majority of these visual stimuli were bright and unambiguous, uh, but some interestingly enough, were so faint, the crows couldn't always make them out. The crows were trained to report whether they'd seen anything using red and blue lights. In some trials, the red light meant the crows should peck the screen if they saw something, and a blue light meant no response was required. In other trials, the blue light was used to tell the bird to peck the screen, and if they hadn't seen anything, and the red light meant they could just sit there. So, in all cases, the red light was used if something was seen, the blue light, if nothing was seen, it just depended on the test if there was to be a peck or not, depending. Now, electrodes hooked up to the crow's brains showed that if the crow's answer was yes, there was elevated brain activity in the time between when the stimulus appeared and when the crow pecked the screen. If the answer was no, nerve cell activity, nerve cell activity was flat. 
So if the answer was no, no nerve cell activity. The correlation between elevated brain activity in this time interval between the stimulus and the bird's answer was so reliable that the researchers could use the crow's brain activity to predict whether or not they're going to say yes or no to these things. What's more, the crow's responses didn't simply correspond with the brightness and clarity of the figure on the screen. Faint figures of equal intensity still managed to elicit varying responses from the pairs of crows. This observation suggests the presence of some secondary mental process that occurred when the crows noticed these figures. So, um, okay, I know this all might be a little esoteric. Bear with me. Let me help. A reaction to ordinary stimulus would say a consistent, easy-to-see figure equals a yes, and anything else is a no. But these crows had a secondary thing going on where vague resemblances to the figure would also constitute a yes or a no, depending, but they would be able to take their sensory input and suss it out further. They would be able to look and go, hmm, is that what I'm seeing? In the statement, Professor Needler says, nerve cells that represent visual input without subjective components are expected to respond in the same way to a visual stimulus of constant intensity. Our results, however, conclusively show that nerve cells at higher processing levels of the crow's brain are influenced by subjective experience, or more precisely, produce subjective experiences. The crow's neurons have activity that represent not what was shown to them, but what they later report to have seen, whether or not that is what they actually were shown. Uh, Susanna Hercliano Huzel, a neurobiologist at Vanderbilt University who published analysis of the study in science, says that this secondary layer of processing of the visual stimulus occurs in the time between when the stimulus appears on the screen and when the crow pecks its answer. She further uh, tells Stat, that's exactly what one would expect from neurons that participated in building the thoughts that we later report. Adding that it suggests that these birds are as cognitively capable as monkeys and even great apes. So when you think of animals that are smart enough to be capable of consciousness, developed enough, I should say, to be capable of subjective experiences, make some room in your definition. It's no longer just the primates. Looks like we got to include a couple bird brains, even if, of course, they're the notably brainy raven and crow family known as the corvids. Now, speaking of the subjective experience that we can have, um, there is something out there known as abundance theory. And um, <laughs> a lot of it can be chalked up to just being new age silliness, but there is a point to it that uh, the kernel of truth, if you will, that I want to make sure gets shared here. Because you see, we as human beings are social creatures. We are the key to each other's not only survival, but ability to thrive. We are the reason why, as a species, we are still here. If we were loners, like 
tigers, for example, who generally speaking, you know, are all alone, you know, they're lone predators. They don't rely on other people. We don't have the tools to do that. We're not strong enough. We're not big enough. We don't have the sharp enough claws or teeth. It just night vision. None of it. We don't have any of that. Okay. What we have is each other. And as human beings, we can work together to use the subjective experiences we have to make each other um, have better lives. And one of the key things that abundance theory does teach, if you will, is that um, there are easy ways out there for you to actually kind of, that's the best way to put it, there are plenty of ways that one can self-sabotage, that, you, that if you're aware of them, you can try to avoid. Now, none of this says for a moment that there isn't such a thing as a hard life. Oh, yes, there is. And no amount of abundance theory is going to deny that. But let's let's take a look at some ways that, uh, that we can hopefully watch out for, the, some ways that we can self-sabotage, that we can watch out for so we can avoid them. Um, one of the first ways is to reject compliments or nice things that others say about you. Now, this might seem silly because you're like, well, I'll reject compliments. I'll feel like it. Yeah, that's fine. That's your right. But remember, these are people expressing their appreciation for what you do and for what you've done and for who you are many times. When they come your way, accept them gracefully. You know, you don't you don't have to necessarily go, damn right, I'm that good. But, you know, you can always just go, well, wow, thank you. I, uh, uh, that, that's wonderful. Thank you for saying that. Um, let people give you compliments and say nice things about you. Believe it or not, this does help reinforce the value of your own life. I mean, there's enough negative and bad things out there. Don't reject compliments or nice things people say about you. If you can help it, I understand there's some days you don't want to hear it, but just, just try that out. Try not to do that. Um, refusing to accept financial gifts. Now this one can be really hard because here, especially in America, we're supposed to be all self-sufficient, right? But if somebody says, Hey, look, um, I would like to give you this. I think it will help you. And you go, oh, I, I can I can handle myself. Thank you very much. Well, see, here's the thing. You're not always going to be able to get what you need when you need it. So when it comes your way, don't reject it. Because if nothing else, it will help you come across to other people as someone who is reachable, someone who they can talk to, someone who, if they offer the help, that they have to give will accept it. If you isolate yourself from other people, you might find yourself more isolated in the future when you need to be connected. Remember, there are times in our lives when we need each other's help. If you refuse it when it's being offered to you, then people are less likely to give it when you ask for it later. Just try to remain open to things that come your way. And if you want to see the world for how it is, the easiest thing to do is close your eyes, breathe deep, remember what matters to you. Find that center within yourself, your moral compass. Then you can release that breath. And when you're ready to finally see the world for how it is, all you'll have to do is... Oh!